Welcome to this special episode of the CMAJ podcast. Regular listeners will notice that I'm neither Blair nor Jola. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Interim Editor-in-Chief of CMAJ. Our new podcast hosts will be back, as they promised, on the next episode. This episode, along with occasional future ones, will follow our old style to focus on a new guideline published in CMAJ. Today, I'm talking about the article entitled Recommendations for Equitable COVID-19 Pandemic Recovery in Canada, which is co-authored by Dr. Nav Persaud. Dr. Persaud is a staff physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and a Canada Research Chair in Health Justice at the University of Toronto. He also works sometimes as an Associate Editor for CMAJ. Welcome, Nav. Thank you, Kirsten. So let's start by having you tell readers why this guidance, why now, what problem do we have that needs to be solved at this point? Inequities that were present before the pandemic were exacerbated and exposed during the spread of COVID-19. And there's also been increased attention to inequities or unfairness in society. So there's an opportunity to make changes now. Let's explore the equity angle a little bit more. Why is it so important to use an equity lens for pandemic recovery policymaking rather than say, uh, let's restore the economy lens like um, the Build Back Better programs seem to imply? Society was unfair before the pandemic and things are unfair now. And during the pandemic, we all experienced harms related to those inequities the spread of COVID-19 among personal support workers or residents in long-term care facilities or uh, shelters for people experiencing homelessness threatened the health of everyone. As the virus was spreading, we were all at risk. So I think we were able to see the problems caused by inequities when they directly put everyone's uh, health at risk. Of course, inequities are primarily a problem for those who are disadvantaged. And, uh, you know, when uh, a person who's experiencing homeless has a heart attack or a stroke, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily cause a problem for others, but it, it helps to underscore uh, the fact that inequities uh, threaten health. And so we have an opportunity now, I think, to address these inequities that can put us all at risk and also disproportionately impact those who are disadvantaged. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic has really highlighted these inequities, even for people who may not have wanted to see them before. Because although we, nobody could say that they've come out of the pandemic unscathed, it's pretty clear to just about everybody now that, that um, folks who are socially disadvantaged or um, disabled or racialized have definitely had worse health outcomes uh, with this pandemic. Yeah, I think... You, know, you first were asking about you know, why we want to focus on equity versus restoring the economy. Um, the economy that we had before and have now uh, has uh, inequity baked into it and is you know, based on the fact that uh, people will agree to work in dangerous jobs, uh, like in meat processing plants. Um, and so I'm not sure that we want to build that back better. Uh, what we'd want to do is first address basics, so make sure that uh, everyone has a living income, for example, so that if someone is being pressured to work in a place that's not safe, be it a meat processing plan or a long-term care facility where 
uh, personal protective equipment is not provided, that person has some options uh, and can say uh, no. Uh, like, see if you can find someone else to do this job, or if not, maybe try and make this job uh, safer and more appropriate. Absolutely. I mean, that idea of, I think sometimes we fall into this trap of when we talk about building back better, we're building back an economy in the image of the pre-pandemic approach to um, economic growth. And um, and that's not sustainable. That's been very clear during the pandemic. So let's go into the guidelines themselves, the nitty gritty. Who was involved in producing these recommendations? A group of scientists based at the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions at St. Michael's Hospital uh, in Unity Health Toronto uh, came together in the summer of 2020. And we uh, scanned the literature and uh, looked at the inequities that were exposed and exacerbated during the pandemic based on reports, for example, from the Public Health Agency of Canada. And then we started thinking about potential interventions that could help address these inequities going forward. And we consulted with people um, with lived experience of inequities and came up with a set of candidate topics to uh, perform systematic searches of the literature for. Uh, and, and that's what led us towards these recommendations. And you've had some interactions with folks beyond the MAP Centre, right? You've had uh, stakeholders from across Canada, I thought, and endorsement from various groups. Could you explain what those are? Sure, that's right. We contacted um, a list of around 20 national organizations, including organizations like the Canadian Medical Association, uh, the Black Physicians of Canada, uh, Canadian Doctors for Medicare, who've all uh, endorsed the recommendations. Um, uh, we also shared the recommendations with the College of Family Physicians of Canada, who support these recommendations. And, and we con contacted uh, many others for uh, input and feedback on the recommendations. In some cases, um, uh, members of those national bodies suggested potential changes to the recommendations, and we uh, adjusted them based on those suggestions. Uh, there were also other topics that uh, some organizations suggested. For example, there was a suggestion to explore youth mental health. Um, and we considered those and did some informal searches of the literature, but ultimately uh, decided that based on what we saw, we wouldn't necessarily be able to make a useful recommendation in all of the important topics uh, that were highlighted by the stakeholders we contacted. So I'll come back to that issue about what you are including in your recommendations and not including and why a little bit later. But first, tell us about the recommendations themselves. What are they, first of all? The recommendations are in six areas, income, housing, intimate partner violence, childhood, access to healthcare, and racism. And we recommend, for example, uh, a living income for everyone uh, living in Canada. Um, we also recommend uh, unemployment insurance and paid sick leave. Uh, additionally, in the category of income, we recommend access to affordable credit or loans um, as a replacement for uh, payday loans that typically have a high rate of interest. Uh, in housing, for people experiencing homelessness who have uh, mental health problems, um, we recommend uh, access to permanent supportive housing. Um, in 
childhood, we recommend uh, expanding access to publicly funded childcare uh, and uh, distribution of healthy foods. Uh, for intimate partner violence, we recommend uh, legal advocacy and other supportive interventions for victims that have been shown uh, in a number of trials to um, improve a number of outcomes and reduce the likelihood of, uh, of violence. Uh, for access to healthcare, we recommend uh, expanding access to opioid substitution therapy, access to HIV and uh, hepatitis C screening. We also recommend including medicines in our publicly funded healthcare system. And we recommend uh, bringing the healthcare that people who are incarcerated receive up to standards uh, seen by people who are not incarcerated. Our recommendation for racism is different from the others. We recommend that uh, action be taken on previous recommendations that have been written uh, over the last several decades about addressing racism, especially uh, anti-Indigenous racism and anti-Black racism. Thanks, Nav. So looking at those categories, hugely important, and we could unpack them all in quite some detail. I noticed there's congruency between your recommendations and those of another report, uh, the Marmots report in the UK, which also highlighted the importance of early life and addressing childhood poverty. Did some of this international guidance inform your guidance in that area? Certainly, this work was informed by uh, work that's been going on over the last several decades on the social determinants of health. And, uh, you know, that report you referenced uh, I, I think was applying that uh, social determinants of health lens to the COVID pandemic and was, I think, intended to start thinking about how we can address the social determinants of health going forward in the pandemic recovery period. So that those sorts of reports and, and other uh, related reports from the Public Health Agency of Canada definitely uh, informed our approach. And what we sought to do that I think was a little bit different from other uh, reports or other resources that were available is to look at the existing literature on interventions and policy changes that can address inequities and think about how we can use those previous studies to inform policy changes uh, right now or during the pandemic recovery period. Thanks for highlighting that. That's that's really important is these recommendations come out of work that is well done, um, long established and accumulating. I, I wanted to focus just briefly on the paid sick leave um, recommendation. Interestingly, that wasn't mentioned in the recent speech from the throne, but there has been a federal bill tabled for the institution of paid sick leave for federally uh, governed businesses. But that to me seems like the most obvious thing that we could do right now in terms of um, preventing harms that we've seen happen in the pandemic where workers who were not able to forego their wages or would be fired if they didn't show up for work went to work sick during the pandemic. And the, that's going to be a thing that would help us in future crises, which are very likely to come, including, you know, climate crises. So um, those income protection uh, recommendations seem to me to be uh, really solid. Yeah, so I completely agree. And, you know, while we were focused on the pandemic recovery period, I think it is important to note that during this pandemic of a virus that causes a cough, 
very little progress was made on paid sick leave, and we still don't have an adequate system that would ensure appropriate paid sick leave for everyone who has a job in Canada. Uh, and so it does point to some of the structural problems here where you know there might be employers or corporations that would benefit from uh, keeping employees in a precarious position and and um, you could understand how an employer would want to prevent people from uh, staying home when they want to um, and when it's appropriate to do so. Uh, so I, I think there are some really big structural challenges going forward in making some of these changes and the fact that we made little progress on paid sick leave during this pandemic helps to illustrate that. Sure. So let's go back to this idea of how you chose the categories that you chose. Um, in the main, you've already explained that you chose to make recommendations in areas that uh, there already exists a fair bit of evidence. And you've pointed out that there was a suggestion that you consider youth mental health. Um, other readers of the guideline might say, why are you not mentioning uh, elderly social care at all? Perhaps you could explain why you chose the particular categories you chose. Sure. And I think that, I think that all of the topics that we chose are important. I hope no one takes the message that if a topic was excluded, it was because we thought it was unimportant. And I, I think there were a number of, of really important topics that are not addressed by these recommendations. I think youth mental health that was suggested is an important example. I think the health of uh, people who come here under the these uh, temporary foreign worker programs or migrant farm worker programs, that's, a, that's an extremely important issue. I think the uh, way, I, I think that the catastrophe that unfolded in long-term care facilities across Canada during the pandemic points to big systemic issues in the way that older adults are cared for in this country and a lack of support for long-term care facilities. Uh, in particular, I think also uh, the serious threats to health of people working in long-term care facilities, such as personal support workers, uh, points to another big problem. And these are all extremely important topics that we didn't uh, address. And I think if we had an unlimited amount of resources and time to formulate these recommendations, we likely would have addressed uh, additional topics like these really important ones. And those extra topics that you've mentioned really underscore the idea that it's important to be looking at structures and, um, and with an equity lens going forward to recover properly from this pandemic. Let's talk about the ranking of the recommendations or the strength. How did you come to rank your recommendations? We use the grade system where we make strong or weak recommendations based on the balance of benefits and harms. And then we also uh, grade the certainty in the estimates, so provide an assessment of the degree to which we think the benefits or harms observed in the studies will match with what actually happens if these changes uh, are implemented in Canada. And in some cases, uh, for example, the uh, studies were primarily done in low and middle income countries. And so, you know, that would decrease our certainty in whether or not the uh, estimates would 
match with what's actually observed if these changes are implemented. But I think in many of the cases, it, you know, regardless of where the studies were done um, or the sizes of the studies, we were able to um, uh, determine that the benefits would clearly outweigh the harms. And so we were able to make a number of uh, strong recommendations. I think it's also important to, um, to point out that you know, we also don't want to send a message that the, the weak recommendations that we make, or you know, we actually uh, use uh, the terms just strong recommendation or strongly recommend and recommend in the document. So it's not that we think the, um, the recommendations that are not strong recommendations are less important or uh, less urgent to implement. Let's talk about the recommendation to reflect and act on racism. It's an ungraded recommendation, but you and your co-authors explain why you think it's an important one. Tell me about that. At first, in general, I think while there's been a lot of attention to inequities during the pandemic, and there have been reports written about racialized people disproportionately experiencing harms during the pandemic, I think a lot of the discourse from leaders has given the impression that these inequities were just discovered uh, and that it, they just found out about them uh, during the pandemic or just before the press conference. In fact, these inequities have been around for a long time. And there are reports certainly going back to the 1990s when there was um, a substantial amount of attention put towards uh, anti-Black racism and anti-Indigenous racism. Uh, but even those reports in the 1990s refer to reports done decades before them. So I think it's important to view these proclamations about the importance of addressing racism now in the appropriate context, and to remember that people made similar proclamations decades ago. So that, that's why we recommend um, reflection on the fact that these previous recommendations exist. And I think in large part, we're not acted upon. And, um, you know, while some things have changed and there have been improvements, I think many of the structural inequities and the structural racism that was addressed in the reports from the 1990s are also present today. And we um, saw them in full force during the pandemic. Yeah, we certainly did. So now, before I kind of end this off, um, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you really thought was important to discuss? Uh, sure. First of all, you know, just on that last point, I, I think it's also one of the reasons that we pointed to the previous reports is because uh, we want to uh, pay respect to, um, you know, all of the people who have contributed to this area of, of, of racism and health. Um, and, and, you know, our contribution, obviously, during the pandemic is, is mostly uh, based on, on work that others have done previously. Uh, that's, that's true in general, but specifically in the topic of racism, I think uh, there are a lot of uh, indigenous scholars and black scholars who have done work that is, uh, in many ways, much more important than our work. And so we want to signal um, that, you know, this article appearing in the CMAJ in 2021, um, you know, it isn't the product just of work that we've been doing for the last year, but it is based in uh, work that Indigenous people 
black people uh, and other racialized people have been doing for a long time. Yeah, and it's not been easy work um, or or always well received. It's probably been frustrating. So um, yeah, thank you for for raising that issue and acknowledging the work that's underpinned your guideline. Nav, what would you like listeners to take away from this discussion? Uh, to end on a like what I would view as an optimistic note, um, and it's that I I think that the inequities that we're experiencing now during the pandemic are the result of decisions that we have made collectively and that our leaders have made. And the implication of that is that we can collectively decide to make society more equitable and fair. And I I think we've seen during the pandemic that there were changes that uh, brought us closer uh, to fairness, you know, like there were income supports that were uh, quickly implemented during the pandemic. Uh, there were, were moratoria on evictions during the pandemic. So we can do these things if we choose to. And I hope that this document, these recommendations will help inform good decisions going forward. Nav, thank you for joining me today for this um, interesting discussion. Thank you very much. I've been talking to Dr. Nav Prasad, a staff physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and a Canada Research Chair in Health Justice at the University of Toronto. You can find the article that he co-authored at cmaj.ca, and we'll put a direct link to it in the show notes. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Interim Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.